Hey guys, welcome back to the Detours Podcast. I'm Bill Wheeler, and our show is brought to you by Blackbeard Media, with support from our friends at the Pulitzer Center. This week I caught up with Ben Anderson. He just returned from Iraq, where he was reporting on the Mosul Offensive for Vice News. Ben's a workhorse journalist and filmmaker with a knack for covering war zones, environmental devastation, and pariah regimes. Afghanistan, Brazil, Congo, Cambodia, North Korea, the list goes on. He's also a damn good writer who's published stories in GQ UK and The Guardian magazine. His first full-length documentary, The Battle for Marja, was picked up by HBO. It later became a book, No Worse Enemy, the inside story of the chaotic struggle for Afghanistan. These days, Ben keeps a relentless travel schedule as a lead correspondent for Vice. We were lucky to catch him at his new apartment in Brooklyn. The only open box was his coffee machine. Yeah, just to drive home the insanity of your schedule. You were in Mosul a week ago. You moved into this place last month. It's brand new. You're just figuring out how to use the coffee machine. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you're off to Congo on Sunday. This is from Mosul. Look. There was one book from the Mosul library that survived. So I pulled a page out. So what else is in there? Uh, I just, like, just bullshit work stuff. Uh, yeah, release forms. And that, that's the, um, the leaflets that the US are dropping on Mosul. $25 million reward for Baghdadi. Wow. We've got Baghdadi's photo and American dollars. Yeah. American currency. That'll get the message across. A lot of people there think he's he's still there. Yeah. I mean, I heard he, he left ages ago, but people there believe he's still there. Yeah. Ben, you've done, uh, you covered a big, big swath of the globe and uh, a lot of really different Stories, environmental stories, Maoist insurgencies in India, after effects of Agent Orange. Um, tell me a little bit about how your, your path into journalism and, and, and how you, you got involved. Um, I grew up in a, in a very small town in England um, where the expectation was you just got a job which paid you know a reasonable salary and then you'd get your house and the car and everything would fall into place. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what did it. It might have been reading John Pilger. It might have been reading uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. But something just suddenly made me aware of what was happening in the world. Um, and I couldn't believe that, you know, stories that now I, I follow every day weren't, weren't front page news. I couldn't believe that, you know, the grown-ups weren't talking about Congo and Palestine and Iraq every day. Um, I couldn't believe our politicians weren't talking about it every day. Um, and I think that combined with the fact that I was living in, in such a small town and didn't really like, you know, how my life was supposed to turn out, turn out. Um, set me off on this path. And I wanted to be a writer to begin with, but then sort of fell into documentaries by accident. Um, you, start, you started with like football, touring football. Uh, tell me about that. That was the second or third series. The first, so I, start, I spent the first three years undercover. So I was trying to be a writer and I got a couple of pieces published here and there, but I mean, I'm pretty sure the articles were really not very good. I mean, probably bad, you know, very earnest, but probably not very good articles. Um, and through that, a friend of a friend just said, look, there's this production company at Channel 4. Um, the one of the executives at Channel 4 had, had a very bad experience with a, a family funeral and just said to a production company who were famous for doing undercover investigations, mm -hmm. just look into it. And they did. And, and sure enough, there was a lot there, but they couldn't find anybody to go undercover. And my CV at that point was, um, if there are criminal things going on, he'll you know get the people's trust and they'll, they'll tell him about them. And if he gets into a sticky situation, he'll be able to talk his way out of it. I mean, that was, you know, I had no... No experience of, of journalism whatsoever. I'd never never studied it. Um, so I spent three months undercover working for an undertaker who was owned by a big American company, but they kept the, the family name above the door. So you believe it's 
you know, this local family firm that you can trust that's been in their family for generations. And it's run like McDonald's. Everything is centralised. So the profits go way up and the service goes way down because the people out the back are, you know, underpaid and undertrained. Um, and after three months, the budget ran out. But, but I knew what a good opportunity this was and I knew that there was more to get as well. So I spent another three months undercover on literally about, about $15, $20 a week. I and mean, I'd, I'd get like a dollar sandwich every day. It was the, my entire food for the day. Um, but then the film came out, I think, just after Princess Diana's funeral. So loads of people watched it. It won a couple of awards. And at the award ceremony, I met Miguel Gill and a few others and saw what they were doing. And I think that was the first time in my life I'd ever thought, A, you know, these are the people I want to be around. I want these people to be my peers. Um, and B, you know, there's a way I can be useful. I mean, now, you know, many, many years later, I'd wonder how useful. But back then, I thought this is a way I can actually help in some way mm. um and then i started reading and watching documentaries and that that was it i was off and I've, I've never never wanted to do anything as much as that and i've never wanted wanted to do anything as much since then you kind of fell under under these guys wings and then they kind of walked you through what i mean how did you first go out on your own after that i stayed in touch with a few of them i mean miguel was killed pretty soon after that in sierra leone um but yeah i stayed in touch with a few of them but kept on doing the undercover stuff and eventually appeared as a kind of sub-reporter alongside a famous reporter and the famous reporter was becoming less and less popular and less and less credible um, and luckily for me the controller of BBC2 saw it and said look give the kid a, a chance um, you know ask him to come up with an idea for his own series and I'll give him his own series this was back in 2001 and I was racking my brains and I was desperate just to get out and cover conflict and get, get out you know into the world and then George Bush made his Axis of Evil speech um, and John Bolton added three countries to the list. So the Axis of Evil list was Iran, Iraq, North Korea, that was the A list, and then Cuba, Syria, um, Libya was the was the B list. And, you know, they, they had a few things in common. There was an Axis. I mean, none of them had anything to do with September 11th, and you could get into every single one on a tourist visa. Mm -hmm. So I said to the BBC, look, let me and just one guy with a handheld camera go into each one of the tourist visa, and we'll just film, you know, kind of from the from the streets up. Um, we won't do the official interviews. We won't do the official, you know, I'll put on a blazer and lecture you, um, mm -hmm. you know, live from wherever I was. Um, and that's how we did it. You know, kind of, kind of a dogma, Gonzo, Gonzo style of documentary making. And it, and it did really well. Mm -hmm. People really liked it. And so off the back of that, we did four or five other series like that, including Frontline Football, where we spent a lot of time with four national football teams um, in countries emerging from war. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, as a way of telling the story of that country, it was it was it was fantastic. I mean, the the, the Serbian team, for example, um, drove to play Bosnia in Sarajevo, and they drove through the graveyard because you know under the siege they they couldn't leave the city to bury their dead. So the Bosnians used the training grounds outside the national stadium to bury their dead, and the Serbian team had to drive through this graveyard to get to the stadium. Um, and there were things like that regularly, and we got su such good access to these you know, international world-class athletes, access you wouldn't get anywhere else. And these were guys who were political, they knew the politics of their countries inside out, had very strong opinions inside out, they were multilingual. Um, and it, yeah, it was it was a fantastic way to get to get access to, to them and, and you know, a thing that the, the, their people had pinned so much hope on. Mm -hmm. So what, what, how do you choose your stories? I mean, there's, you know, if you're looking at like Maoist insurgencies in India, you're looking at uh, guerrilla poaching in Congo, you're looking at all the work that you've done in Iraq and Afghanistan. Is there a, a connective tissue between those? How do you come up with what you want to work on? I mean, there should be much more of a connective tissue. It's, it's kind of chaos. It's, it's, you've always got 10 or 15 stories you're kind of working on and hoping to do at some point. Um, probably 
between a third and half of them never come off. Um, but you're always just keeping your eyes open and keeping in touch with a few people just in case they can come off. Um, you know, I think almost by accident, there is kind of a strategy. I mean, Afghanistan, I've covered more than anywhere else. Um, I just just went there recently and I'm just finishing a film about Helmand now. And it's, it's almost my 10-year anniversary mm. of covering that war. Um, so there are some issues that I'll always go back to. I'm, obviously, I'm doing much more of ISIS recently um, and doing environmental stories, which was just a way of trying to um, just give myself a bit of bit of longevity because if it's just war back to back constantly then I think you burn out very quickly and you you know you, you can lose your that that initial initial curiosity and, and you know desire to get out there and see everything that I described at the beginning once you've lost that I think you, you, you know you're finished um, and it's pointless being there and once you're even verging towards being one of those people and you know you see it all the time with foreign reporters of oh good I've, I've got the person crying I've got the destroyed house I've got everything I need now I can I can go back to the hotel you know once you get into that state where it's just work then I don't think you should be doing it anymore mm. um, so I'm looking at ways now of just trying to you know recharge and, and rest a little bit and make sure that I'm I'm at my best when I when I go to war and it's, it's hard it's, it's really hard keeping that up how do you uh, how do you decompress uh, I mean I haven't really I mean I'll you know I mean you know, I'm now working for Vice and I'm doing, rather than hour-long or, or feature-length docs, I'm doing lots of 15-minute or 30-minute long films, which means you're you're travelling constantly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might get 24 hours or 36 hours in a hotel somewhere. You might get a, a weekend at home every now and again where I'll just sleep and I'll watch an HBO or Showtime drama or I'll, I'll read a, a nice book, <laughs> you know, a book about something pleasant. Or Actually, I was going to say a novel, but I've read like three novels in the last five or six years. But there's there's not in, anywhere near enough enough time to, to decompress. Yeah. And I remember a photographer years ago when I was just starting out said to me, "I don't care how poor you are. I don't care how much time you don't have. Like having three or four days off somewhere really nice and peaceful after each trip is as essential as having a camera and a pen and a notepad and yes, as essential as anything else." And I agree with that advice, but yeah, I haven't really been able to take it enough so far. A camera. Uh... Uh, notebook and a pen I mean you kind of uh, blazed an interesting path as a writer as a filmmaker as a producer what do you do those roles reinforce each other what do you like doing best um, I mean it's difficult because you know a, a documentary we do now for HBO um, through Vice will get 15 or 20 million views which is fantastic uh, my book I think sold 16,000 <laughs> something like that and you know if you said to me now name 10 documentaries that will change my life I'd struggle to, to name 10 if you said name 50 books that will change my life I could reel off 50 instantly so let's I, let's, what are some of those books uh, I mean all of Kapuscinski all of George Orwell in particular the essays I think more than more than more than certainly the novels Homer de Catalonia obviously one of my favourite of all time um, I've just read um Adam Hothschild's new book, uh, Spain in Our Hearts, about Americans who volunteered to spite in the, in the, in the civil, Spanish right. Civil War. And I love every one of his... And every, his, his last four books are, I think, some of the greatest um, non-fiction books I've ever read. So King Leopold's Ghost, uh, Bury the Chains, To End All Wars, and then Spain in Our Hearts are just masterpieces. Um, new Yorker, I'll always try and read The New Yorker, pretty much cover to cover every every week. Um but the, the one I keep on going back to is the, is the essays of George Orwell and, and, and the journalism of Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, I reread Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas a little while ago and actually found it quite boring mm. compared to his journalism because his mm-hmm. journalism was so good. And I think you can forget 
how good a journalist he was mm-hmm. because he's famous for so much yeah. for so much else. No, I was going to say, you know, the the, the, the best encapsulation or the best uh, thing that you can take out of Gonzo journalism is the sense of, of uh, man of the people sort of ground up. And you seem to have a lot of that in your work. I wondered if you were a Hunter Thompson fan. Massive fan, yeah. I mean, his stuff on the LAPD, for example, of just, you know, going to East yeah. LA and just yeah. living in that neighborhood for, for weeks it. and weeks. And that's something that, that I mean... I think I've said this before, but it's it's it seems perverse in America the way it works. The ones who do the least of that, you know, the anchors who sit behind the desks and look like models, yeah. male and female, um, they get paid the most and are the most famous. The writers and photographers who do the most of that are the least famous, the least well paid, and the least celebrated. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly, upside down. Yeah, I think there's a great that that East LA piece has this somewhere in the lead. He's describing being woken up in the morning and getting a call you got to roll out and jump in the car with these guys who are you know rocking guns and he's like living in his own filth in this dilapidated Bukowski-esque sort of slum yeah and uh and and you could just tell he'd been soaking that up for a while but but still doing the work as well I mean he was so so diligent as a journalist and I think people people forget you have to do that as well and that's that's not fun and exciting Mm. in ways that people think you know he was all the time he really put in put in the work and did, did the homework he did. I mean, in the start of his career, I guess, you know, I think the criticism would be that he leaned on this crutch of the character he'd created. You know? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, at the beginning, Gonzo was a, a man of the people sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, at the minute, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm not writing as much as I used to and I regret that and, and I worry that I'm, I won't be able to write um, or my writing will have, you know, slipped. Um, but at the minute, it seems possible that you can actually do, do all of them. I mean, sometimes, like I read the Luke Mogelson piece recently about you know the the SWAT teams fight against ISIS in in in, uh, in motion. I thought, man, that's you know, he, it's such a good piece, and I don't think I could ever come close to that unless I was completely focusing on writing and nothing else. You know, at the minute I'm writing after I get back, and in some ways, documentary making helps you because you know the the camera is the ultimate notebook. I mean, when I did my book, I got every single tape I'd ever shot and just watched it from start to finish, um, and got every single word accurately translated, and it was like the ultimate notebook. Um, but but there's definitely something you miss by not being able to just constantly think of you know all the time when you're when you're in these countries you think of the perfect phrase to describe something to, to describe something or, or you know you get the perfect quote from someone when you're not filming and unless you're focusing is on writing then you're you're not going to be able to keep track of all that you know and I have to my priority has to be one thing over another that's why I don't really take pictures um, when I shoot because it's bad so, enough yeah. trying to write and make a documentary if I was trying to do a third thing as well then it would I think all three would would suffer. Let's talk about uh, Marja and, and how that project came together. At the time you were, and this was before the deal with Vice, it was just you and a camera, right? And uh, tell me about that project and how it- Well, I was, I was with the BBC at the time. I was on this on this kind of like rolling freelance contract and I never quite got to the bottom of it, but, you know, I'd, I'd been working on access to this operation for ages and I'd been out with the Marines before and they liked me because I turned up with just a backpack and nothing else. So I was very easy for them to have. And I just... I didn't interfere with them in any way. I just followed them and kept up with them and slept wherever they slept and ate whatever they ate um, and then filmed, you know, hopefully what would have happened had I not been there. But they, they, they were happy to have me along and they didn't really care about, you know, the politics of it and what I would say about the policy, just as long as someone showed how hard it was for them and how rough it was for them, they were happy for let, to let me go. And that's why I love going out with the US Marines because they'll, they'll let you say whatever you believe about the situation. And, and they respect your, your, your freedom to do that and will let you, let you do that. But they'll let you see and film everything. So I had great access to the Marines. And they said, 
the big one, as it was secretly called then, um, is coming up soon and you have permission to go with the guys who are going to be right in the middle of it. Um, and the BBC uh, turned me down and they said, um, I mean, they said officially it's too dangerous, I think, because their in-country correspondents couldn't or wouldn't get access to this huge operation. I think that their boss actually shafted me. Um, so I had a big decision then. You know, I'd been working on this for six or seven months. I knew it was going to be incredible. Um, biggest operation since the war began. Um, I was at a best friend's um, stag party, uh, bachelor party, um, you know, when they gave me the call. So I had to leave there. I had to borrow a flak jacket and helmet and camera, pay for the, you know, the flight myself. Um, and I went out, out there with no no commission whatsoever, no insurance, no no nothing. And they were saying, they were begging me not to go and saying, you're making a big mistake. And as I went out there, I was thinking to myself, I could come back here, you know, 10 grand in debt and with no legs and it'll all be for, for nothing. Um, but I did get this amazing access. The guys I was with were actually dropped into the middle of Marja at 3 a.m. on day one and had to fight their way out with nothing but the rifles they were carrying. Um, and as a result of going through that experience with them, then I got to film everything else. I mean, it's possibly the best access with any military I've ever had in terms of them just letting me do and film and say whatever I wanted. I mean, to the point where, I mean, there's, there's, there's always one, one scene I remember where the big surprise of Marjorie was how good the, um, the snipers were. The, you know, very well-trained snipers who would fire one shot in a day. And that was it. So they couldn't figure out where they were. Um, they finally figured out that this one sniper was attacking from a cluster of buildings and they got their 25 best guys together to run in a huge circle across open ground that hadn't been cleared of IEDs and climb onto this roof and just wait for a van to come and pick him up and, and take him away. So we climb up onto this roof and I think before the van comes, they see the Marines up there and there's a big firefight. Um, but the sniper eventually appears and they, they killed everybody. They called in a drone strike in the end. Um, but I was laying next to the guy who was shooting at the sniper and the people who were picking him up and he said he's fucking dead I hit that guy right in the fucking head like celebrating whooping and they're high-fiving and hugging and I'm filming the entire thing couldn't believe I'm you know being allowed to film all of this and at the end of it the captain who to this day is 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 the best marine I've ever met I mean a you know incredible outstanding man said look Ben I, I wouldn't ask you not to include anything that you've recorded in these last two months it was two months in the end because I went back and spent some more time with them. But can you just warn me of anything bad? Because, you know, I need to prepare my guys because mm -hmm. they're going to get in trouble. I feel like they're going to get in trouble as a result of what you've what mm -hmm. you've seen and recorded. So I said, sure, there are, you know, there are four or five things that I think your guys will get in trouble for. And I told him what they were. Um, and in, in relation to the sniper incident, he said, that's fine. He said, that's what we were sent here to do. Mm -hmm. um, I have no problem with you showing that whatsoever. And the guy himself came up to me. And he said, um, that day when I killed the sniper, he said, um, I had a helmet and sunglasses on that day, didn't I? I said, yeah, you did. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm worried that no one will be able to identify me. Can you put, can you put my name on the screen? Wow. So, you know, I mean, to, to, I mean now, now, you know, the, 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 the British and American operations in Iraq and Afghanistan are almost in secret now. Mm -hmm. And we have no idea what American and British soldiers, because mm -hmm. they're mostly special forces, are mm -hmm. doing, where they are, what they're actually doing day to day. And it's amazing. It's gone from such open access to a war that's being fought almost completely in, in, in secret. And that's because the, the PR blowback of American troops dying, that they just outsourced this and try to keep the body count low. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's one of the many advantages of, of using special forces is, yeah, yeah. like who knows? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, private security um, forces as well, same thing. Mm -hmm. How about, you know, when you're talking about negotiating, sitting in that space with these guys, 
you have any tips? Is it just that you have to sit there and get your ass kicked and lead the same life that they're leading? Or, I mean, you seem to be good at, you know, talking you out of trouble. And, you know, is it, I think about Chris Chivers, I think has written that, you know, every time he goes out on patrol with a new unit, he'll introduce himself and say, you know, my job is, is X, Y, and Z. And, and, you know, I've been through this before and he'll just have a sort of heart to heart, no bullshit with people. Yeah. Do you, do you have any tips for, for, I mean, I, I think you, you can, you can use the way a lot of people operate to your advantage. So a lot of, a lot of people, rebels, politicians, militaries, all sorts have had, have had very bad experiences with journalists, but they've turned up and they said, okay, I want these three things right away. And they've acted like they're the most important people in the room. I think if you're writing or if you're making a documentary and your aim is to try and be there when real life is unfolding, you can say, I'm going to spend a month here and I'm going to, you know, live exactly as, as you live. And I'm, I'm never going to, you know, lecture anybody on what on my interpretation of what's happening here. I'm just going to follow. And occasionally I'll ask a few little questions here and there, but mostly I'm just going to just going to follow. You know, act like act like Hunter S. Thompson or Gay Talese or you know the famous the the new journalists of the sixties and seventies. Um, and I think that immediately impresses a lot of people and they think, oh, they they he actually really wants to be here and and, and tell my story. That works, but. Sometimes, I mean, I, I, I turned up to Sangin when the US Marines took over from the British forces and a British journalist had been there just before me and written about how actually, actually General Kelly's son had been killed. He'd, he'd, he'd been killed by an IED in a, in, a, in a particularly horrendous way. And this was, the details of this were, were, were told to this, this British reporter. And he says he had a pen and a notepad with him when they were telling him the details of how General Kelly's son was killed. Um, and he published it in his story. And later they said they were just chatting, you know, over, over coffee or something and told him and he wasn't supposed to include it in the story. But when I turned up, they said, you know, um, if you make us look bad, if you make us look like baby killers, then we're going to come after you. Um, you know, they really did not want me there. And I was, you know, another British journalist turning up just after this, this last guy had done that. He got, he got kicked out of the country and got his, his badge taken away. Um, and with them, I just had to go out on, I mean, I went out on more patrols than, than the Marines did because... If two or three teams were patrolling every day, I'd go out on one patrol. And then when the other team were going out, I'd go out on that patrol as well. Mm. And eventually some of them warmed up to me. Um, but that, that, took, that took a long, a long time. They were very hostile to me when I, when I first arrived. And it was very obvious they were taking me because they were being forced to. Mm -hmm. And they'd much rather I was, I was not there. How long did that process take to do them all up? I'd say five or six days at least of, of going out on, on one or two eight-hour patrols every day, of trudging through you know, cold, muddy field where there were, at that point, there were IEDs everywhere. I mean, three, five Marines, who were the ones I was with there, had been, I can't remember the numbers now, but but dozens of them had, had, had been, you know, single, double or triple amputees. I think there were even a, f a few quadruple amputees amongst them. It was, and Sangin's always been one of the worst places in Afghanistan. Um, but they, they got hit, I think, harder than anybody else. Hmm. What, do you, what do you think they meant when they said, we'll come after you? I don't know. I mean... Some of them, I'm sure, would have been capable of like finding me and just, you know, beating the crap out of me. Um, I don't know. I don't. Know if they, I mean, back then, you know, social media wasn't wasn't such a big thing, so I don't think they meant they were going to troll me on, on Twitter. No, I, th I think it was definitely a physical threat. <laughs> uh, uh, um, why do you keep going back to Afghanistan? I mean, how do you decide that that's a story that that you want to keep telling, even though the, the news appetite seems to have moved on? Well, I mean, I think I think that's exactly why. Um, you know, it's it's an American and British war um, which has failed to achieve most of its objectives, and you know it, it's getting worse every year. I mean, the Taliban are now in control of more territory than they've been at any time since they were overthrown. Helmand, where most American and British forces fought, 
um, is now 85% in, in, you know, in the Taliban's hands. And almost no one is, is reporting it. Um, so that's one of the main reasons. I think that's one of the biggest attractions. It's just, it's just being able to say to someone, this is what the situation is on the ground. Um, what you're being told is, is bullshit, if you're being told anything. Um, or, you know, Shane, the owner of Vice, has a nice analogy. He says, watching the American media, and I think he's mostly talking about television news, is like watching 11-year-olds play soccer. You know, there's a, there's a soccer pitch, and wherever the ball is, all 20, 20 kids are around that ball. Um, so, you know, that occasionally you want to say, well, I'm going to go to the, the huge yeah. empty bit of the field and, and highlight something really important. You know, sure. I mean, we're, we're doing a story next week in Congo, and we're going to profile a, a Ugandan rebel group who have killed way more people than the LRA. Um, and almost no one's no one's reported on them, mm. um, and you know that 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 still that still gets me motivated. Motivated. I mean, I still more now than ever. I think I question, especially as things things are so polarized now. And I, you know, I mean, I argue with these marine friends of mine on Facebook about about some of the, the fake news stories that are kicking around, and and you know, you do wonder what you're actually achieving. You know, it feels like you're preaching to the choir. Um, and if someone wants to believe that Afghanistan was a success or Planned Parenthood does nothing but government-funded abortions or Trump won the popular vote, you know, then it's very easy for them to find several professional-looking websites that they'll share and, and it'll confirm their, their belief. Um, and I'm not sure how many people are actually looking to have their views challenged or, 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 you know, or actually just going in with an open mind to, 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 to get to the bottom of things, you know. Well, I mean, so, but the takeaway from a lot of your work is that, you know, in Afghanistan is that, you know, there is this widespread belief uh, you know, among among uh, Afghans and, and and American servicemen, that that we've given up essentially. You know, that we it's not that we're moving on because we uh, have achieved our goals. We've just given up on. So, in that context, I mean, are you saying that that there are still people? If that's the dominant viewpoint, uh, that's a reality that has sunk in, right? But when you have these conversations with your Marine friends, um, what's that? What's that discourse like? Um, I mean, I think. A lot of them would say, a lot of them would blame it on Obama withdrawing early. Um, they would say early. Um, a lot of them would blame it on policy before that, on things like rules of engagement. Um, you know, I think, I think, I think you're absolutely right to say we've given up on 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 solving the problem in Afghanistan. But I think there's enough of an effort now to prevent absolute catastrophe. Um, so it's not, you know, completely giving up could mean the mm. Taliban retake the entire country. I mean, it really could mean that. Um, so there's enough of a commitment, mostly in terms of airstrikes um, and funding right now. I mean, I think the Afghan security forces are still completely funded by the US and other foreign donors as well. Um, you know, the, the Afghan government, there's no way they can afford to fund the security forces. So, so you know, given up on winning, um, but not given up on preventing complete catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know... In terms of the PR, which sometimes I think is more important than anything else, um, that seems to be working because it's not such a disaster that it's getting reported mm. in the news. Um, but then again, no one is saying, let's send in another 150,000 troops and commit for another 10 years, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think anybody would have the political capital to do. I mean, you know, we always hear about um, if Obama would have done X, Y and Z, Syria would have been a completely different conflict. Mm -hmm. It could have been over by now. There could have been no ISIS and no al Nusra. Um, I don't know anybody that thinks a Republican or a Democrat back then could have got the public support for, you know, another full-scale invasion, another 150,000 mm -hmm. boots on the ground anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, most, most, almost everyone would agree that we should have intervened in Rwanda to stop that 
I think if Rwanda happened tomorrow, exactly the same circumstances, I'm not sure we would intervene just because there wouldn't be the public support mm -hmm. for it. Um, you know, from the people who will say, um, I will gladly slam the door shut on Syrian refugees. You know, there's that camp. But also on, on you know, from the people who will say, even if we go in there with good intentions, um, that doesn't mean we can actually help and we might even make the situation worse. You know, mm -hmm. you hear that from a, a lot of people now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the legacy of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why when you see Russia and, and Iran and, and others, you know, having a much stronger hand and knowing they have a much stronger hand, um, I think that's also part of the legacy of those two wars. With Vice, tell me about Vice. How's that? <laughs> uh, I mean, look, it's, you know, um, when I first heard about them, I didn't take them at all seriously. Um, and still sometimes now I get into arguments with people about films they did a long time ago. Um, but everything is moving in the right direction. And they're yeah. hiring some very smart, very good people. And whenever, you know, one of my colleagues criticises Vice, and some people really like to criticise Vice, yeah, that's the thing. I'll, I'll just say, look, in the last two or three years, I've been sent to Yemen twice, Pakistan twice, Iraq three times, Syria three times, Afghanistan five times, Congo, um, Siberia, you know, n name someone else uh, in any medium who's getting that much support. And it is, it is pretty much unconditional support. Mm. I don't really have budget meetings. Um, the meetings I do have to get these story, stories greenlit are sometimes, a, a, you know, I mean, literally, I'm, do, I'm doing a story in a couple of months and it was, I was in a meeting with Shane and he, he had another meeting and, and I said, look, I can, I can pitch this story in a minute. And I did and he said, yes. Um, it's, you know, it's as simple as that. And I don't know anyone that, that, that gets that much support to do this many foreign, dark, complex yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and on HBO as well. And, yeah, you know, HBO just, just put out a trailer for our, our new season that was 10 minutes long in between Girls and John Oliver. I mean, I've never heard of anyone getting that, that kind of support. Yeah, I mean, credit where credit is due. I think Vice does some incredible stuff and they, they've captured or tried to capture a sensibility that deserved to be captured. But, you know, for guys, and, and you know, you're doing amazing work there. Jeff Warzer and Eamon Ogana's uh, Raid of Fallujah. I mean, there, there are people out there doing doing really cool stuff and getting cameras into great places. Uh, but it's also got to be frustrating as a guy who's been doing this for so long when you've got the sort of, let me describe them as American apparel reporters that they've just sort of swooped up off the street in Williamsburg who don't ask follow-up questions. I mean, is there a, does that, do you have a hand in influencing that? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I mean, I was one of the youngest ones at the BBC or one of the older ones at Vice. And yeah, I'm helping out other people all the time, as are the other older people that we've hired from Al Jazeera and ABC and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and I, you know, I don't see many follow-up questions. I mean, I watch, I watch Meet the Press um, and they ask the, the tough question you're supposed to ask and get an absolutely bullshit answer. And then there's no follow-up and it's, thank you, sir. See you next week, sir. Because they're so determined to get the access. So mm. uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've seen our people give 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 some people a good good grilling. Um, I mean, it's documentary and it's a short documentary, so it's not like a twenty minute uncut interview. But you know, I mean, you know, there are things that that Vice did that I think did warrant some criticism years ago. Um, I can't think of any examples over the last last few years. Of, I mean, everyone's going to have a few howlers or a few ill, Ill advised tweets or or you know a line of commentary which is wrong here and there. I just, I just, in general, I think I think they they've grown up very very fast. So how how do you see your roles as as host, uh, as filmmaker, as writer? What's your your most comfortable? Like where do you really want to be hanging out in that in that? Uh... I'm most comfortable as a writer. I'm most comfortable. Um, I'm, I'm 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 still not 
that comfortable on camera now. I mean, what I try and do is take just one cameraman or woman, mm. um, no sound man, no second camera, no producer or director. And I try and have a relationship with them where if I talk to the camera, it's like I'm talking to them and the cap- camera happens to be between us. You know, I hope it's spontaneous and intimate and, and genuine. Um, I, I hate doing rehearsed stand-ups, as they're called. Um, and I just think there's no need for it. I mean, actually, Marja, Marja was a big turning point for me because at that point I was shooting films completely alone. And I, I think I was just pretending to be a writer, you know, mm. just embedding for months alone in whatever situation you're covering and hoping they forget you're there and just covering real life. And there was a scene where after the Marines I was with, the f- finally reinforcements ar- arrived. So Charlie Company um, arrived with, with vehicles after fighting their way into Marja from the outside, I think four days after the initial invasion. And they fired a rocket into the wrong house um, and killed a woman and three kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, they have the condolence payment meeting the next day where they meet and they hand out money. And in this case, $10,000, $2,500 per, per person killed. And I filmed this meeting. It lasted about three hours. I mean, one of the most, you know, intimate, heartbreaking scenes I think I've ever filmed. And, and the, the brother of the, the woman who was killed spoke and he, he cried. He was angry and he cried and... The Marines spoke and some of them pretty much cried and, and you know, were, were genuinely um, devastated about what had happened. Um, the money was handed over and, and they kind of reconciled um, towards the end. And, and the natural thing would be turn the camera onto me and say, oh, my God, this is one of the most upsetting scenes I've ever seen. But I thought, who gives a shit what I think? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a powerful scene. Yeah, but and I've covered the reactions of the main participants. I'm not a participant. Mm-hmm. So right then I, I didn't turn the camera on myself and record that obvious thing that anyone would have said and didn't you know for the rest of the trip and the film ended up being a feature-length doc on hbo and a feature-length doc on on channel four and it's still one of the things i'm, I'm most proud of mm-hmm. so if i am on camera now and vice did want me to be a correspondent then it'll be just as a, as a i know it's a cliche but just as a conduit to, to you know to explain mm-hmm. essentially whatever's happening i, I you know I, i've got to the point now where i just think you know I, you, you, you can take quite a lot of praise for doing this um, as a job, but we're VIPs in these places, you know. Um, we know we're going to get a meal within a few days. Um, we know we can leave whenever we want. Um, we know if we need it, there's a whole network of people can bend over backwards to get us out. Um, so, you know, my emotional reaction to things, I just, I just, I just think, who cares? Mm. Um, and I actually think I should just do my job and, and, and record it. Uh, and actually it's the people who live there and are trying to raise families there and um, you know can't can't get out it's it's you know that's 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 what matters so I think I'm I can I'm accurate if I say that you know I do actually cut myself out of my own films as much as possible <laughs> tell me about the relationship so Afghanistan is the, the, the most consistent story you've told over time uh, tell me about the interpreters and 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 you know I wonder when you talked about uh, weighing the cost benefit and the, the impact that you can have with journalism um that's, that's got to be a story that pulls at your heartstrings. And the, is it the relationships that you've had there that, that makes you feel like that's um, worth it? Or Yeah, I mean, that was, that, that's, especially now, you know, where, where Donald Trump is talking about introducing extreme vetting. And I think, man, these guys, these guys spent five years getting the special immigrant visa. Uh, they would get letters from generals, ambassadors, you know, every Marine or soldier they ever served with. I mean, and this was, this was people who, are American veterans. I mean, that's what they're, you know, the, the soldiers and Marines who, who used them would say. You know, he, he was part of our unit, they would say often. Um, you know, if they face that kind of vetting, then you know what kind of vetting everyone else is, is facing. 
Um, so yeah, just just to, and, and and you know, I, I also think it probably contributed to veterans PTSD because they felt like they were leaving one of their guys behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it also played into. I think you know. I said earlier the reason I do this is is I think it's as simple as don't let liars lie. <laughs> you know. And if the embassy and ISAF and others are saying, oh, we did a great job in Afghanistan, the Taliban are almost finished, as they say every few months. Um, and the Afghan security forces are ready to stand up and do the job on their own. The government is rooting out corruption and, and you know all the stuff you hear every day. Um, you know, I want to part part of the motivation, if that's wrong, if that's a lie, is to prove that it's that it's a lie. Um, and part of the reason I think they couldn't um, admit that that the interpreters were in danger was because that would mean admitting that the Taliban are still there and security isn't there and corruption is still a massive problem. Um, so that sort of made it doubly offensive, you know, the fact that they weren't doing the right thing by by people that had, had literally risked their lives for, you know, forget a six-month or 12-month tour. These guys did it for years on end for no money um, or very little money. Um, so to not do the right thing by them on its own was bad enough, but to not do it because you can't possibly admit that the situation is, is so bad still and getting worse was was just 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 ludicrous um and that's actually a story where i think us and a few others did manage to have some impact i mean i think we 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 helped get you know a few thousand extra sivs approved mm. um you know we had a screening at the capitol building and lots of um congressmen and, and senators senators came and you know there were lots of people contributed to to doing that but but i think our our film and we did an ebook about it as well which was pretty much in the interpreter's own words i think i think that had some effect. Mm. Not, not you know, when I first started doing this, you think you can change the world. Mm. Um, and I think maybe then some documentaries and books did. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I think those days are a number. I think there are, you know, it, they, they, most of them have far less power than they would have done when there weren't as many platforms. Um, but yeah, it had a, had a little impact. Evan Wright, I heard him on a podcast talking about, uh, you know, this instinct that when you're hanging out, military setting and you see you know a weapon or a munition that you know the, the part of you the human part of you wants to like chime in and like say you know exactly what that is and what that does and for him as a reporter he's he has to stifle that instinct because um it makes it more interesting to ask the dumb question because the response can be more revealing and so you know you've you've covered so much conflict and and have developed a sort of um extensive knowledge about the weaponry of war and strategies and how do you balance um, the sort of human portrait aspect of your work with the sort of machinations of war and, and all the technical stuff? I mean, I think you can you can get real access um, without having to, uh, you know, kiss their ass or try and be like them. Um, I think it's important to, A, I mean, win their trust, obviously, but, but as soon as you start trying to impress them with your military knowledge or, or experience... Um, I think the relationship's going to be skewed. I think you have to, you can impress, I think you, you'll stand more, far more chance of impressing them by showing you're independent and showing you're willing to ask the tough questions and say things they might disagree with. Um, and, and I've seen, I've definitely seen some, I have to say, male reporters, um, you know, trying to impress Marines or soldiers with their knowledge of, of weaponry. Um, and I, I find it embarrassing. Um, and I think the, the soldiers and Marines find it a bit embarrassing as well. I mean, I'm never going to know anywhere near as much as they do about weapons and, and equipment. Um, so I don't I don't ever try. Um, and actually, I think sometimes the most important thing is to let them know very early on um, 
that you are you are always going to be independent and you're always going to have your own conclusion and um you know if you see bad things happening or bad things being said then then you're going to show them and, and, and include them and I, I think you know it's almost like not asking the tough question is, is worse than asking the, the tough question because you just you know pe- people don't don't respect you unless unless you're you're and then you know what's really impressed me and I, I don't want to just go on about the marines constantly but they really seem to get the idea of the importance of the freedom of the press I've heard, you know, that. I've heard that from, from, yeah. from British, from British reporters. I didn't expect weird. at all. I mean, the, the British military, the guys on the ground are fine, but you'll have a minder with you um, trying to block you from doing anything that might be seen as vaguely negative um, and trying to encourage you to, you know, oh, let's then arrange a patrol for you, especially so you can see soldiers handing out sweets to children or soldiers, you know, uh, look watching over the painting of a, of a school. And yet you'll hear fighting going on down the road. Oh no, it's nothing. It's a wedding. They're celebrating. It's not actual fighting. You know, awful. Whereas the, the you know, and I'm talking about like young, like 18, 19 year old Marines from the middle of nowhere, really respected. You know, be, I mean, because I was there and because I was staying a long time with them as well, but really respected the fact that I, I was going to have my own take on this and my own opinion, and it, it would probably be very different to theirs. Um, that 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 has always been really impressive about 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 the US Marines far more than anybody else I've been with um, although you know I remember once there was a I was with a group of Marines and uh, don't ask don't tell just got repealed and I thought oh here we go like I have to be the young you know the, the, not, not young so I have to be the liberal reporter who argues with the sergeant major because the sergeant major had said something like it's a fucking Christian country it's disgusting we shouldn't have you know we shouldn't allow this to happen and allow it to be in our military so I literally sort of took a breath ready to, you know, give him the, the, the obvious response. And two or three young Marines around me said, actually, you know what? I went through boot camp with a gay Marine and he's the best fucking Marine I've ever worked with. And I would defend him. Like, I would die for him. I'd take a bullet for him, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it's, you know, you, you expect to be the, 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 the contrarian in the group and you expect to be fighting with them on things like that. And, and actually, you know, that the, the, the Sergeant Major who was, who was against... Don't ask, don't tell. Was um, was the one who was shouted down, and not, and not me. Sorry, that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. No, um, makes sense, though, man. Nice but no, yeah, the spirit I, of debate is still alive in the American military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, that'll last, uh, outlast the new uh, executive. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, you know, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll never try and. Uh, I mean, I, I might, I might casually drop in a few references to, you know, oh, I was in this town eight years ago, or you know, just, just little things, just, a, just a, I mean. With, uh, I did a, I did a film for Vice called This Is What Winning Looks Like and mm-hmm. I turned up to Sangin where I'd been many times before with the Brits and the Americans and the infantry weren't doing anything they were just staying on the base and I thought oh, this is a disaster like, I'm just going to be with a bunch of guys lifting weights and watching DVD box sets and I found out there were these two very small teams of Marines who were advising the police and the army I think it was 14 Marines on each team I thought, oh that could you know that could be interesting because they're actually going out and interacting with the army and the police every day um and I knew what the police in Sangin or in Helmand were like. You know, they were drug addicts. They were selling equipment they'd been given. They were kidnapping people. They were paedophiles. You know, every every policeman had a had a chai boy. Um, so I took a really big gamble and just just met the the major. I think he was. He was in charge of this this training team and just just you know kind of said, I've been here many times and I've seen you know I know what these guys do. And I told him a couple of stories about catching them with chai boys or you know whatever. Um, and he, I think he actually thought, finally, someone someone who, who gets it. Because I've been reporting this stuff up for months and months and they're ignoring me because they don't want to hear it. All they want to hear is that the police are doing a fantastic job. And he became 
the central character of the film and he let me film everything. I mean, confronting a police commander about the fact that two chai boys had been murdered while trying to escape. Um, so that's one example where actually showing that I knew, I knew a bit um, really, really helped me. Um, and had I have turned up and pretended to be naive and pretended that I was, you know, interested in just showing them doing a fantastic job, I could have ended up getting nothing. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think the right kind of knowledge can can help you a great deal. I think trying to impress military people with your knowledge of of, of guns and equipment is 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 like I said, it's it's embarrassing. And you know, if 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 you want to go down that route, then then go and fight somewhere. You know, be, sign up. <laughs> you know, but but otherwise, you know. Stick to what, what your job's supposed to be. So that brings us to Iraq. Tell me about, you just out of Mosul a week ago? Yeah, yeah. We were with, we tried to go with the, the CTS, the Iraqi Special Forces, but the access they gave us that really wasn't very good. Mm. Um, so we went out with the Iraqi army instead and saw them clearing three neighbourhoods, I think, in the end of, of East Mosul. Um, and that was interesting because, you know, the, the whole narrative that's being spun about Mosul is the Iraqi forces are making up for humiliation of two and a half years ago, and they're now able to, to do it on their own. Um, without US airstrikes, they, they wouldn't have cleared East Mosul by now, and it's been, it's been three months. Mm -hmm. And by some estimates, the CTS have taken uh, as high as a 50% casualty rate. Mm. Um, I mean, they've really been hit hard, and we saw quite often the Hashd al-Shabi, the, you know, the um, uh, often Shiite, uh, often Iranian-backed militias uh, coming in to reinforce them and sometimes even wearing police or army uniforms. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not the, the, the positive story it's being spun as. And so far, the, the, those, those militias have, have behaved relatively well compared to how they behaved in Tikrit and elsewhere. Um, but, but, you know, there's still the danger of, of, of sectarianism there. And, you know, I, mean, I interviewed Christians who fled Mosul two and a half years ago and they said look life was so bad under the Maliki government that we welcomed ISIS when they first came and we thought great if you're going to protect us from the Maliki government then you know we'll 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 happily have you um and some people even said you know that that's why they joined and you know ideologically had no commitment whatsoever but just said if you can provide security against the the, the Maliki government and if you can give me a chance for revenge against them as well then then yeah I'll join um and if the goal is to make sure those condi conditions don't exist after Mosul falls, um, then I'm not sure that's that's going to be achieved. I mean, the plan now is to wrap up all of the militias under the Ministry of Defense, right, which risk, runs the risk of legitimizing death squads. Is that, how do you see that playing out? What does that mean for the future of Iraq? I mean, you know, every time now, I mean, I'm, you know, if I use the, 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 the phrase militia now, lots of people out there get, get very angry and you have to call them the popular mobilization units or, and, and they are part of the official government forces. Um, but you know, apart from some fairly anecdotal evidence over the last few weeks, there's there's not much to suggest they've they've changed too much. I mean, it's not hard to find videos of them doing all the things that ISIS do. Um, their videos aren't as glossy. You know, it's just on a mobile phone rather than a high definition red camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but apart from that, you you can see them beheading people and, and beating people to death and just pushing people to the floor and 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 shooting them. You know, multiple times on suspicion of being of being ISIS. Um, and if, if Qasim Soleimani is there, then he's commanding them. Um, you know, I mean, some of them, the Baad organization, were literally created in Iran and are commanded by an Iranian general. Um, and that that doesn't bode well for the future, especially not if, if if Trump is serious about pulling out of the, you know, the nuclear agreement with with Iran. I mean, if they wanted to, they could they could cause havoc for for the West in in four or five 
countries in that region. What are people saying on the ground right now among the security forces, among the civilians uh, about Trump? Is that a conversation that, that's taking place? No, no, no. I mean, far, far less than I thought. In, in Afghanistan, someone told me something very interesting. There were some, um, some villagers who had fled in, from Achin district in Nangarhar province as soon as ISIS first came. And some of the elders from, from their family hadn't managed to flee. And ISIS accused them of being, of being spies and, and made them sit on explosives and blew them up. Um, and the family members of those elders said to me, well, if Donald Trump says that America created ISIS, and he says it on this podium in front of thousands of people on national TV, it must be true. Because for them, incompetence is not a good enough explanation. Mm. You know, they don't think it can possibly be true that, that, that America and the West, you know, with all its money and power, um, could have gone into Afghanistan and 15 years later for ISIS to appear by accident or by mistake. You know, they can't believe that, that, that that's, a, that's as the result of a, of a failed policy. They think that must be some, some sort of plan. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty shocking to hear, you know, villagers from a very rural part of Nangarhar province um, hearing about Trump's claim that the US um, created ISIS and, and believing it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in Iraq, honestly, I, I don't remember Trump um, coming up in conversation at all. I, mean, I think I think the Muslim ban was announced just after I left or as I was leaving. Um, but I thought that would be interesting to be, I mean, I mean to be an American in, in Iraq <laughs> when that was announced and have the Iraqis say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm, you know, bleeding and dying in the fight against ISIS here. I mean, for my own country, sure, but but I can't go and visit my, my, my granddad in, in, you know, New Jersey or I can't go to Disneyland or I can't go and meet with, with you know, my American counterpart in DC in a few months. I mean, that's, um, you know, forget the moral argument, um, just pragmatically, it, it makes no sense whatsoever to, to, to alienate, um, you know, our most important allies in the fight against ISIS. It's yeah. insane right now. And, you know, the main source of intelligence against, against ISIS. To alienate them right now is, is insanity. So, I mean, I think you'd characterize somewhere I read that, uh, you know, the, the thinking is that uh, Bush's, Bush's, you know, fatal flaw was the invasion. Obama sort of gets labeled his fatal flaw being supporting Maliki's government that was increasing these sectarian grievances. What do you think the, 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 the next flaws uh, that are going to play out are? Where, where do you think things are headed after the liberation of Mosul? What happens next? Does Fallujah have any indicators that that's going to be i mean there's worrying signs coming out of fallujah already um that that you know the, the rebuilding isn't happening at all or nowhere near um a quick enough rate um afghanistan i mean you know it's interesting when when you when you work in these countries and you come across local ngos or ngos employing locals and you see what the good ones manage to do with a very small amount of, of funding mm. um and i think i mean you know, I think I've said this several times before, but I look at Emergency, you know, the Italian NGO that operates all over the place, but has a fantastic operation in Afghanistan. They were there under the Taliban. They were there during the Mujahideen period. They've been there ever since. And, and for a, a tiny budget compared to the cost of having thousands of, of foreign troops there, I mean, like a 0.001% of the military budget, um, you know, they've done an amazing job of providing healthcare. I mean, mostly trauma medical care for sure, but providing very good trauma care across Afghanistan, including in the worst places. Um, and I think had we have given 0.01% of our budget to a group like that, who do mostly employ locals, who at the end of the day are not only dedicated and hardworking, but streetwise, mm-hmm. far more streetwise than any 
policy advisor or marine or, or, or you know, soldier is ever going to be, no matter how hard they study and how much they listen to the locals and if they speak both languages, which they almost never do, um, you know, supporting the right, honest, dedicated, streetwise locals to do it can do so much more than we can ever hope to do. Um, you know, so any any positive change that's going to come is, is always going to come from within. It's never going to come from us mm-hmm. turning up and telling them mm-hmm. how it's going to be done. And it's not much of a, you know, it's not the most advanced <laughs> theory in the world, but I'm sure that that approach would work far better than than, than us trying to tell them how to do it. Because, you know, I saw it a thousand times in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you'd meet with, or sorry, US or, or UK soldiers would meet with their local counterparts and they would say yes or agree to whatever they needed to agree with to get the check or to get the support or get the fuel or vehicle or whatever it was and then the minute we leave and we do always leave very quickly go back to doing things exactly the way they did before mm-hmm. um you know and the idea we could create a whole new culture in in afghanistan and iraq in the space of a few years was 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 just just pure fantasy mm-hmm. and was if you do it the local way with locals then i think you can achieve mm-hmm. extraordinary things and i think you know yes the 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 the, the mistake was invading iraq in the first place and making such a hash of what followed but you know we mentioned George Orwell before you know he would have said the number one cause especially of, of people who consider themselves to be liberals or of the left would be to to oppose um tyrants and dictators around the world you know and you know I don't think we should we should lose sight of that you know you don't have to completely botch what comes next um I think there are much smarter ways of, of supporting the right the right people if you had something like a journalistic ethos or a or a goal of your journalism, um, what would that be? Don't um, let liars lie. <laughs> yeah, don't let liars lie. Um, I mean, I think mine is mine is um, like almost embarrassingly simple. It's just just be in the right place for long enough to record what actually happened to the point where someone who's directly involved or lives it or lives there will say yes, that's an accurate portrayal of of what it's like to live in. Aleppo or Sangin or, or wherever it is um, and you know some people are brilliant at, at going through thousands of pages of documents or, or you know can do the most incisive cutting interviews that get right to the heart of things straight away I, I think my strength is just just you know I have some some physical endurance, endurance and I'm curious so if I can just go somewhere it might be difficult to, to stick it out you know I can stick it out for a while and just just you know, sometimes you talk about something completely irrelevant for hours before something revelatory comes up. You have to be willing and interested enough to to, to do that. But but yeah, always I think that the people you're covering, if you show them the final product and they say, yeah, that's that's what it's like for us in Aleppo or Sangin or wherever it is, then then yeah, I think you've done your job. And and you know, with foreign policy coverage, more and more often than not, it means it's 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 so crazy how what you're being told is happening here, you know, just by being on the ground and just by walking around with your eyes open for a day or a mm. couple of days. I mean, you know, I, since I moved to America, I've got in so many arguments with people about Israel, Palestine. And I've just said to people, just, just if, if you go to Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, just, just get a, an Arab Israeli, a Palestinian taxi driver, just to drive you around the West Bank for a day. Just sit at a checkpoint for one hour and just watch what happens. And that will mean more, that will you know, teach you more than reading 50 books on the subject. Um, and you, will, you won't ever hear that perspective here, or very rarely, I mean, in the predictable places, but, but the debates you hear here about that issue um, are incredible. And it's, it's, it's often the same now with, with ISIS and, and Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. I mean, just, just basic facts are, are, are 
not not being understood. I mean, I read a thing this morning about the the, the protest for and in favor for and against um, Planned Parenthood. You know, I, I argue with people on the title on on Facebook and places sometimes, and they they still think Planned Parenthood does nothing but government funded abortion. It doesn't do any government funded abortions. <laughs> yeah, these things take ten seconds to find out. Um, so yeah, I guess my ethos would just be take advantage of the one thing you can do, which is just, you know, stick it out for a little while and just, just report these, these basic facts. That's all for this week. Keep an eye out for Ben's latest on Vice on HBO. If you'd like to check out some of his earlier work, visit us online at detourspodcast.com forward slash episodes. We'll be back again next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Bill Wheeler signing off.